This is Past Perfect, CU Medieval Radio's program on medieval and early modern history and culture, in association with Civil Radio FM 98. Hello there. You are listening to Past Perfect. This is CU Medieval Radio's show in medieval and early modern history and culture in association with Civil Radio FM 98. I'm your host, uh, Christopher Milka, for today, and uh, today we are joined by Dr. Attila Baranyi. Um, Dr. Baranyi is a senior lecturer in history in the Department of History at the University of Debrecen in uh, Eastern Hungary. And uh, for those of you uh, interested, I first heard about Debrecen because of the very famous Debrecen Summer School, which uh, is one of the largest um, programs for um, non-Hungarians to come and uh, learn Hungarian at the University of Debrecen. And uh, Dr. Brani is also uh, an instructor there. So um, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you. Hello, everyone. Uh, it's a great honor to be here. And uh, thank you also for the invitation. We are very happy to have you here. And uh, so to start off, um, your main area of interest is in the era of um, King Sigismund. Is that correct? Yes, King uh, Sigismund of Luxembourg or Luxembourg is a, a very interesting thing to skip from the German pronunciation and pronounce it in the English way, Luxembourg. I, I cannot <laughs> stand it myself, Luxembourg. <laughs> But uh, or Sigismund, I, I myself would say Sigismund and uh, Luxembourg, if I may. But even for the English audience, we can use Luxembourg if you wish. I, I agree with you on the point for Sigismund. I can barely bring myself to say it, mm-hmm. but um, Sigismund. Well, Sigismund. And oh. well, to, to start with, for the folks at home, um, he's originally from uh, Luxembourg, right? But how does he make his way over into Hungary? He had nothing to do with Luxembourg, the the exact territory of present day. He was from the great dynasty of the House of Luxembourg, who uh, at the beginning of the 14th century inherited through the female line the crown of Bohemia in 1310. Uh, John the Blind of uh, Luxembourg became the king of Bohemia and his son became Charles IV, the Bohemian Emperor, uh, Emperor of the Holy Roman Empire at the, uh, the middle of the 14th century and founded, uh, laid the foundations of a very interesting uh, imperial structure where the central, the focal point of direction and government was a bit outside the central areas of of Germany, Bohemia, Prague. He made Prague his central city. And through dynastic links with the Hungarian Angevins ruling in Hungary in the 14th century, his son Sigismund of Luxembourg uh, inherited the throne of Hungary in 1387. Okay, so... um 1387, and he ruled until... Uh, 50 years, uh, 1437. So it was a long, one of the longest reigns, the longest, I think, the longest of the reigns of all Hungarian kings, uh, except for Franz Josef. Uh, yes, oh yes. <laughs> uh, but f- reigning 50 years in Hungary, that is a pretty big accomplishment. Yes, even though uh, he reigned for 50 years, he has been treated a bit negatively in, in Hungarian historical literature, mainly in traditional Hungarian historical literature in the 19th century, mm-hmm. mainly because of the 
the way he divided his attention and divided his governmental offices between a Bohemia and the Holy Roman Empire. Okay. And one of the major offenses of Hungarian historians, national Hungarian historians of the 19th century, that he didn't spend much time in Hungary. He was always on his way throughout Europe. He was traveling from Paris to Constance to, to, to Rome to Aragon and he in in a way neglected his home, his first crown, the German. In one of the uh, Hungarian uh, narrative chronicles he's called the, the German swine. You Germans wa- or you Czech swine oh you defeated us or you neglected us, real Hungarians because you are you're just enjoying yourself in, in banquets and tournaments and uh, events of chivalry throughout Europe while we are facing the Turks on the lower Danube and our king is not here it right. is to stand to face against the real enemy so we have a great king we historians, uh, modern historians are trying to re-establish him as a politician, as a realist politician. Right, right. But this is very difficult because uh, if you open up a school book or textbook, the old 80 years, uh, 90 years view that is coming out of the the secondary school textbook, this uh, absent-minded king who had hobby horses throughout Europe and (laughs) uh, who was working for the unification of the church, but he did not pay enough attention to the treasury. There is a, a strong debasement of the currency and financial crises at the beginning and, and throughout his reign. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, the, the treasury was always more or less empty. And he, he, one of the famous stories of King Sigismund, even those that are still taught at schools that whenever he received a royal present or gift or a chivalric present from the king of England for example Mm -hmm. the order of the garter and this insignia of the order of the garter the the sword and and badges he he put it into pledge the other day the next day and uh, because he was always short of money This is a funny king who <laughs> we, we have gallant stories of his life and his, his attraction to women. So we have a very negative, uh, traditionally based view of an alien-born German-speaking right. monarch. But that view was mostly born during the age of the mid-19th century, Mm -hmm. when there there were strong feelings against the Habsburg absolutism after the Hungarian Revolution of the Mm 1848-49. Well, I think you've touched across, you know, several really important historiographic issues. I mean, here we have Sigismund, who he marries Mary, the heiress of the Hungarian crown. He then becomes Holy Roman Emperor in Germany, and then he becomes... Uh, king of Bohemia, so he has a vast amount of land under his belt. So, um, and then speaking of 19th century um, literature, a lot of my friends who work on Sigismund have complained to me all the time that you have German historiography on Sigismund, you have Czech history on mm-hmm. Sigismund, and you have Hungarian historiography on Sigismund, and getting the three <laughs> bodies of evidence to speak to each other in practice is really rather difficult. 
if you don't mind me asking, how do you how do you go around this this problem for all this really vast literature on him? Yes, it's interesting. He was not uh, reinvented as a, a, a major monarch until the late 20th century, even in Hungary, where Elemir Majus, the famous Hungarian historian, published his major monograph on King Sigismund, and he had an important article on the political system of centralization and governmental system of Sigismund in Hungary, but actually he wrote it before it was published in, in 1984, I think, 85 or, or so, but he... Uh, Elamir Marius wrote it uh, decades before when he collected archival sources, diplomas, uh, charters for his major collection of charters from the Sigismundian period. But because of the political uh, system of communism in Hungary in the 1950s, uh, his work on uh, Sigismund was not to be published just 30 years after, right. in, in the 80s. Even looking at from the side of German historical literature, Sigismund was in a way neglected from the point of view of German historical literature until the late 1970s. There there is no monograph on him Mm. until the late 70s or early 1980s. It was a great task even for German historians to reevaluate and reinvent Sigismund as a German mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, a monarch, because in the traditional way, they, the Germans uh, did not treat Sigismund as a real German emperor, because he spent most of his time in, in other tasks, in doing other things, right. fighting against the Turks, fighting against the Hussites in Bohemia. But he didn't even have a residence in central Germany, except for some shorter, brief periods in Nuremberg, for example. So it was in the 1980s that he was re-evaluated by German historians. And then I think the first real monograph just was published in the 90s, on late 1980s and 90s on Sigismund. And I do not know myself a Bohemian monograph mm-hmm. by Bohemian historians dedicated to Sigismund as King of Bohemia. I see. Except for those publications dealing with the, the struggles against the Hussites. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But as a royal figure, as a figure of politics and administration, how the administration and the royal government, chancery, treasury looked like from 1420 to 37, it is 17 years in Bohemia. I do not know myself that the Bohemian historiography at least tried to, to lay the foundations of a royal monography. I think even the Bohemians, if I may say, I think it's very difficult for them, I understand, but they cannot detach themselves from the Hussite uh, discourse and view Sigismund as the king, our king, of course, but the king who fought against, always for 17 years, fought against us Bohemians. I see, right. From leading crusades to, to Bohemia and, and besieging Prague and uh, leading armies against the Hussites. Right, and, right. and I think this is the, the task of Bohemian historiography that is still to be done. Right, I see, I see. And there is no real cooperation between scholars, German scholars, Bohemian scholars, 
and Hungarian scholars in the field of Sigismund in 50 years. This is a huge, it's half a century. Yes. But the first trial, first attempt was from the side of, I think, Hungarian scholars at the end of the 1980s, where the first Sigismund conference at Székesfehérvá was held, and a two-volume monograph on Sigismund and his court culture, art historical uh, movements in Hungary was published. And there were some scholars from Czechoslovakia and Austria publishing in that volume. And a few years later, the second one in, I think, 1994, was by German historians who again organized a Sigismund conference. And uh, this was the first occasion, I think, ever that Germans and Hungarians and Bohemians were grouped together and uh, had a joint conference on Sigismund himself. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And there was, a, uh, if I may add, Debrecen. A third one was in Debrecen with German and Hungarian scholars who had uh, an international conference. It was in 1997, 1998. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And the great breakthrough was the, the Sigismund exhibition at the Yes. Museum of Fine Art in Hungary and a Museum of History and Art History in Luxembourg and two volumes, a, a, an art history catalogue uh, of the exhibition and uh, a collection of articles published in 2006 in Germany with huge volumes. After that, we cannot say that this is not researched anymore, but we have uh, lots of things to do still after that. Yes, I'm very glad you did mention the the exhibition catalog because I've had a chance to... It, I, I can't remember the exact title. It's something like Sigismundus Rex, uh, Rex et Imperator. Imperator. Yes. It's a very, very well done collection of essays, in my opinion, and the, the objects that are in there are really, really cool. So definitely, uh, if you can find a copy nearby for the listeners back home, I definitely recommend checking it out. In the first section, we were talking about Sigismund, who's, you know... King of Hungary, he's Holy Roman Emperor, he's King of Bohemia. It, and one of the things that really strikes me about him as a person and aspects of his reign, there's a very international character uh, in this period. And um, in our talks before this interview, one of your research interests is um, context between Hungary and Western Europe, England in particular. So uh, would you mind telling us a little bit about what's the international uh, scene in Hungary uh, in this period? It's interesting because when I started uh, doing research on, on Sigismund, mainly late uh, 14th century, late Angevin Hungary, King Louis the Great, and early 15th century, later 15th century, I was trying to do research on the foreign diplomatic contacts of the Kingdom of Hungary, mainly Western European contacts and French and German contacts. And in a way, I was moving towards an unresearched, never really a focused period in the field. This is a context between England and Hungary. Mm-hmm. And sometimes when I speak of my research interests and, and research fields, and I say my research field is Anglo-Hungarian contacts, and, and mm-hmm. for first and foremost reaction, and backhand reaction is that there were no contacts between England and Hungary. The so far away <laughs> lands, not even. So what are you doing? You're just uh, hunting for bits and pieces and 
sometimes you find something, sometimes you do not find anything. And but how, how could you do that? Because in the uh, research of Hungary, uh, Hungary's contact relationships, the, the more natural, feasible thing would be to do research on the traditionally based themes like Czech-Hungarian, Polish-Hungarian uh, relations. Immediate neighbors. Yes, or even German-Austrian relations. Mm -hmm. Why, the question I always get, it's why England? Why English and Hungarian connections? And all the time, I have the feeling I, for the first five minutes, I have to, to justify myself that this is a genuine research field. Of course. You, you believe me, there are sources. There are sources. Yes, there are sources. <laughs> Any kind of source, real sources. <laughs> charters. Yes, there are charters. So how come so far as 2,000 miles away? So how could they cooperate or even encounter one another in the kings of Hungary and the kings of England? But the, this is the interesting point why the starting point is the reign of King Sigismund, because he was the first ruler of Hungary who, who went to a royal visit to England during the Council of Constance, 1416, and spent a, a particularly long, longer than a, a royal visit, a normal royal visit, he spent more than three months in England and had negotiations with the major movers of English foreign policy at that time and uh, had seen a uh, Westminster Palace and certain castles of England and then had made a visit to the shrine of St. Thomas Becket, for example. This is one of the longest and one of the most important uh, royal legations or royal visits of medieval Hungarian kings. And that is why I came to ask questions. Was why England? Why Thigismund, uh, as a king of Hungary, not only as a ruler of the empire, but the king of Hungary, found it important to negotiate with the king of England at that time. The real cause was the Sigismund uh, wished to gain the vote of uh, the King of England, Henry V at that time, at the Council of Constance, to be able to depose the three popes and <laughs> elect the only one pope, right, right. and to be able to bring forward the union uh, of the church and move the pope back to Rome. Uh, this was one part, but in that way I was collecting material and collecting sources and charters, etc. And, and I found that there's a huge material, even in English sources, from that period for English and Hungarian contacts, which at the first sight, uh, even myself thought it unbelievable. That I, how, how come that there are such uh, remarkable contact points? For example, one of the most important ones, or even most intriguing ones, that there is a tombstone in far away eastern Hungary, a tombstone of a baron, a magne, Hungarian baron, called Janos Perényi. It's in Türke Terebes, in present-day Trebišov, Slovakia, in the church. And in the tombstone of Janos Perényi, he has 
a color of SS, the so-called Plantagenet Lancastrian SS color, which oh. even do I think you you might be familiar with this color yes. if you have a picture in mind of, of, of a portrait of Henry VIII, for example, or yeah. Thomas More, bearing a, a color, a necklace, but in the heraldic way we call it a color, a color made of S letters S, yeah. combining with one another. Henry the Fourth, I think, was the one who started that. Yes. And it's um I know that you know a lot of relatives of Henry the Fourth and Henry the Fifth use that, but I didn't know you're saying that this fellow in in eastern Slovakia yes it's it's a familiar uh, <laughs> a, a picture because everybody knows the yeah. Hans Holbein portraits of yes. Thomas More uh, Thomas Cromwell etc etc and Henry the Ace and this is the same as as color my God. round the coat of arms of a far away Eastern Hungarian baron's coat of arms. That is incredible. That is really incredible. So how come, and this is the only one in Europe, he is the only one who received the Lancastrian insignia in Eastern Europe. There are just two or three, one, uh, Oswald von Falkenstein, the Minizenge or chivalrous poet of the court of Sigismund also received that color from the King of England, but there are very few in the continent, few noblemen who received. It's a, it's a proof of a very high standing, and it is a proof of a using the modern uh, usage, a, a status symbol or, or part of a status consciousness. That how come that this nobleman in Hungary uh, wearing the same Lancastrian insignia than the king himself? It is even more important and even more intriguing than the Order of the Garter, for right. example. Because that's a very specific uh, type of collar. Yes, and uh, there are, I think, not more than 10, I think, 10, 12 occasions. The Duke of Mantua, for example, received that from the King of England. And one Venetian diplomat received it from the King of England. So. It is even rarer, I think, than the donation of the Order of the Garter. And it symbolizes something, a close commitment to the causes of the dynasty. So that nobleman went to England. We know that he went to England with Sigismund. Mm -hmm. And he did something to the King of England, for which he gained one of the greatest uh, gifts of the royal dynasty of England at that time. So when you go to a faraway church in, uh, in eastern Slovakia and you find the Plantagenet insignia, you cannot say that there are no contacts between England and Hungary. Right. So we are doing it uh, with my colleague. I'm not the only one who is involved in Anglo-Hungarian contacts. It is not only my research field. Mm -hmm. But uh, this is a, an, an interesting topic because you're doing it for 10-15 years. You are searching for information, and uh, it's a, like kind of a mosaic building, and trying to bit, put this bit and this piece to this and that. And my colleague, professor of the CEU medieval department, uh, Joško Laslovsky, is mm -hmm. doing the same thing. Mm -hmm. So I would say that uh, this is our joint uh, hobby horse to find mosaics in Anglo-Hungarian contacts. But uh, we published a joint monograph on medieval Hungarian Anglo-Hungarian contacts together with a third uh, co-author, Zuzanna uh, Pop, also a graduate of CEU, yes. and uh, a graduate of the University of Leeds. And the, the basic ideology, or I would say 
pathological statement drafted in the introduction that uh, this is not the way how the traditional dynastic political uh, links are structured. Right, right. But there are certain channels and ways of information, we, we call them channels, where certain contacts uh, exist. For example, in the field of the Crusades, for example, this is not the normal or not uh, direct encounters are present in the field of crusading enterprises like the crusade of Nicopolis where English knights were present for example mm -hmm. quite a number of them the second one is a pilgrimage for example okay a certain knight who went to St. Patrick's Cave in Ireland, in Ulster, also visited the King of England. Why? What was the reason for that? Or did the theatres or circles of the church, a clerical society? So why is that uh, there are a number of instances in the 12th century Lincoln diocese that a certain number of men denominated as de Ungaria are present. So there are certain channels where the contacts are present out of the ordinary way. The uh, medieval contacts and relationships are not only alliances, right. dynastic links, right, but right. they have to be viewed in the field of certain indirect uh, channels and ways where medieval society was structured. So we did not write this book as a linear, a chronological overview of relationships. In that sense, there were not many dynastic links right, and, right. and negotiations and not royal visits. But apart from that, in the so-called morphological or sociological structure in the way medieval society was working, they find these contacts not so remote as from the early modern period or after the Ottoman invasion we right. or historians uh, would think. Definitely. It's certainly this perception out there. I mean, whenever I have to use a textbook made for U.S. Uh, students about, you know, a generic overview of the Middle Ages, you hear of you hear of Hungary, Poland, and Bohemia all in the same breath, and that mm -hmm. is in the uh, 10th and 11th centuries, mm -hmm. the conversion to Christianity, and in a medieval textbook that covers, let's say, the year 500 to the year 1500, that will be the only mention of any country east of the Rhine River mm -hmm. or north of the Alps. And unfortunately, that really has not changed. So saying, you know, oh, there were plenty of English and Hungarian contexts in the Middle Ages. It's very difficult for people to, to wrap that, their head around that, partly because of the literature that's in place, and I think also because of very recent historiographic trends. Speaking of Professor Laszlowski, um, he was my first interviewee here on CU Medieval Radio. I remember him speaking several times in particular about students, lots mm. of Hungarian students going to places like the University of Paris, um, mm. Oxford, I think one of the uh, I can't remember it exactly, but I think he said that the second foreign student mm. was essentially John of Hungary, Janos Panonikos, mm. or mm -hmm. something like that. So there's there's a lot of different, aside from, you know, marital alliances, there's all sorts of educational, ecclesiastic ties. Um, very briefly, was there any trade between England and Hungary in this period? Any 
long-distance trade that you know of. It is also a kind of mosaic building, I uh, see. Uh, but I believe there were contacts through the, the Hansa cities, for example. Oh, I mean, okay. We know of certain uh, Hungarian merchants who had been to London and uh, Hull and, uh, and Norwich and, and the eastern ports of England throughout. There was one way, the north of Poland, uh, Danzig and Rostock and uh, Hamburg and, and uh, the Hansa contact as a secondary contact the Hungarian uh, merchandise and Hungarian merchants reached Hamburg and Lübeck and went away to, oh, to okay. England and that I, I wouldn't say that there were many but there are uh, uh, some information on them and uh, the other way was the northern Rhine region the Netherlandish uh, cities from their uh, English merchandise English cloth could reach Hungary in, even in the 14th century or even Hungarian wine for example mm. we have sources for Hungarian wine Sigismund himself had the he, he himself always brought Hungarian wine strong Hungarian wine uh-huh. uh, with him which the English could not stand uh, <laughs> uh, or, or they try to drink it as the, the lighter French ones but this is not the way and the, the, <laughs> At the end of the day, they they got to know what Hungarian wine was see. different. Different. Well, I'm going to have to stop us here right now. You mentioned the monograph on Hungarian and English contacts. It's published out in Hungarian at the moment, and it's my understanding that an English version will be um, popping up on the shelves um, fairly soon. I don't know the exact dates, but uh, it's in the works, from my understanding. It took such a long time to finish even the Hungarian one. It took more than 10 years. Because it's a kind of thing that you cannot stop. There is always another Another interesting little bit. bit. I cannot finish that part because there is an article I have not uh, yet read. So this was how we were working with Joska. There is some something I have to see myself in England, and I I'm <laughs> traveling to England next week, and I have to see this and that. And so this is the way. And the publisher said at least hundred times that you guys you should stop somewhere and finish it. So we are now enjoying ourselves that <laughs> we, we were able <laughs> uh, to finish a, a small and, break. And, and taking a small break. But I think even if not in the same length, mm-hmm. uh, it, a two volume over uh, 600 pages monograph, so it w- will not be interesting for the uh, English speaking uh, market. But a shorter. Not a direct uh, translation. Not a direct something. translation, but an abridged uh, version. Good, good. I think this is what we are having in mind uh, with Yoshka, but he has quite a number of other things to do yes. all the time. The, the harder thing was to ask him to stop the, the monograph at that point. We've been talking a lot about the period of King Sigismund, the end of the 14th, beginning of the 15th century, and I want to skip ahead a little bit in time because when I first met you over a year ago, I remember that you were working on a monograph about um, Anne of Foix, who was a Hungarian queen um, in the very early 16th century, so quite a little bit later. So would you mind telling us a little bit about her? 
It's an interesting question. How come a queen, a French queen, came to Hungary and marry a guy from remote parts, mm-hmm. a Jagiellonian, Ladislas II? The queen Anne de Foix was a French queen at the beginning of the 16th century. And as far as I know, she's totally unresearched. There are some publications, there are some colleagues, for example, Orshoy Arithei, who did her PhD on early 16th century Hungarian queenship encounter that came across with her in her chapters. But the diplomatic background of that marriage has been treated a few times, starting from the late 19th century. But the, the diplomatic background was not at all structured or formulated and not at all researched. And this is not really my research field, and I'm not the one who is doing a monograph on Anne oh, but my colleague. Uh, Attila Jörkös at Development History at Ebertsen University, but we wrote an article together with him. We are working together with him. We have with two other colleagues at the Department of History in Ebertsen University a research group called Memoria Regum, the monuments of the kings of Hungary in Western Europe. And I came into the picture in a very different way or very funny way because I researching at the British Library in London, I came across with a, a manuscript of Andefoa's travel to Hungary. It is held at the British Library and it is an illuminated manuscript, very, I think it is one of the highest quality of manuscript painting of late 15th century, Burgundian heritage, Burgundian Netherlandish, I think. Queen Anne's travel to Hungary, and there are very intriguing pictures in it. The company of Queen Anne, the the entourage of Queen Anne, and the reception of the Hungarian nobles with Hungarian coat of arms, and some pictures of Hungary, for example, fish and horses, the, the symbolic thing that a Western European chronicle writer or a a manuscript painter found important for Hungary. My favorite illumination of Hungary, symbolizing Hungary, is is a fishman full of a huge number of fish. This is Hungary. It is a rich country in the East. This is also coming up in other narrative relations of travelers. But this is the only one I've seen it in, in a manuscript painting. And my colleague, Tila Jurekes, who is working on French and Hungarian collection, we went together again to London and did research on the whole manuscript, transcribed the manuscript and actually bought the publication rights of of the manuscript. And we are preparing, uh, not myself, but mainly my colleague is is preparing the, the commentary and annotation of the text of Andefoas, of travel to Hungary. There are interesting scenes, his reception as Sigas Fehervar, how she received in what tournaments and, and banquets and, and dances and etc. etc. in Buda Castle. So it is a, it is a very interesting piece of Hungarian literature. It was published in bad translation 150 years before, but uh-huh. nobody knows that. But uh, the interesting thing that uh, there are altogether three manuscripts, two others are in Paris, but mm-hmm. the only illuminated one is, is the, the British Library one. I see. And through this Codex or Manuscript publication, I was also involved because Anne de Foix had English relatives. Well, she was uh, also called Anne de Candale or Anne 
of Kendall in the English way because the family of the Foix counts of uh, southern France had English baronage and had English estates, landed estates, uh, even in the 15th century. Mm -hmm. And she had relatives. And the interesting thing for me, who is not doing French and Hungarian connections, but English ones, that one of the major pretenders, one of the, the last pretenders of the House of York after the Wars of Roses fled to Hungary, mm. to the court of Vladislas II, and especially the Queen and the Foire, Henry VII, who was massacring the Yorkists, and he was always wishing to be the only one of the Wars of the Roses crisis, and even his son was, was uh, beheading uh, all the rivals. That there was one guy who escaped, he escaped to Buddha, and because of the Andefois English connection. So it is an interesting story, and we uh, published it, one of the parts, we published it in the Sazadok, in Hungarian language, together, but my colleague is editing now and preparing the final annotations to the Andefois uh, manuscript, so it will be published, I think, this spring in Hungarian translation, but with the original Breton-French text, uh, with a modernized French transcription as well. Will it be a, a facsimile of the illuminated manuscript or a transcription? A facsimile as well. Oh, a facsimile as well, oh, because it was, we had research funding for that, for to, to buy the rights from the... So okay. It was only seven or nine or ten paintings, but it I was see. nothing expressive, if I may say. <laughs> but we have the rights to... I think the, the illuminations are the most interesting parts of, of the manuscript, and they had to be published. The text was published badly, partially, in Hungary uh, in the, back in the 19th century, but nobody knows of the mm -hmm. the Hungarian entourage, the reception and, and the representation of the court of Hungary, king of Hungary and the members of the court. And we can identify persons, Bartoli, Perényi and uh, members of oh, the okay. court as well. Uh, Venetian uh, legates and envoys and things like that, imperial legates and their, their banners and coats of arms. So we are not art historians, but I think this uh, something that an art historian would make good use of when it is published. Okay. So this is the story of of, of Anne de She was only queen for a very short period. She died very young, in, but in childbirthing, yes, she died in just after she she gave birth to Louis the Second, and she was queen for four years only. But to me, it's still interesting that in such a short time she. I heard her journey, you know, from France to Hungary made such an impact as to be, you know, something that was thought to be worth recording down in, in such a manner with very, very nice illuminated manuscripts as well. I think, I think that's very neat. <laughs> an interesting part of uh, Hungarian history, uh, even from the point of view of direct relations, direct French relations. So. At the time, the Jagiellonians and the Valois relationships uh, facing the the Habsburg, growing Habsburg Empire at the beginning of the 15th century. This is something that uh, should be done. I, I think this also strengthens our vision that Hungary, even at that time, at the time of the Jagiellonians, after the golden age of Matthias Corvinus, 
was not a backward, a faraway, remote place of faraway Eastern Europe. And that that was was a country that had to be counted with in the major theatres of policy making mm-hmm. uh, in the major centres of Europe because it was one of the greatest dynasties ruling over for Bohemia, Poland and Hungary from the Adriatic to the Baltic Sea from present-day Ukraine to to Silesia, even to the the Lausitz, for example. (laughs) It's it's, it's one of the hugest territories ruled by one dynasty. But we have the vision in Hungarian historians that after the golden age of Matthias, everything is going deep into deep crisis. Mm -hmm. This is the so-called Mohács syndrome. We didn't lose the battle on the battlefield of Mohács, but um, the V lost the battle because of the deep despair and crisis. We were moving down to this deep crisis and anarchy just after the, the death of King Matthias. And this is not true because a niece of the King of France comes over to Hungary and marries the King of Hungary. And this is exactly uh, not true. There is a peace with the Ottomans uh, up to the uh, beginning of the uh, 1510s. And this is one of the major movers of European policies, the the, the Aquilonian court, I think. For me, it's to bring it back a bit to our earlier discussions. We have the 50-year reign of Sigismund, where the historiography is treated as this, you know, buffoon who couldn't control money, then... By the exact opposite, we have the golden reign of King Matthias, where everything was great and mm-hmm. nothing went wrong. And then to turn it around again before Mohach, the Jagiellonians have been presented again as, you know, this period of decline mm-hmm. when I think recent research has sort of tended to challenge, well, one, decline for who and sort of what exactly is meant by referring to a certain reign as prosperous, but also all rulers of most Hungary and most of medieval Renaissance, modern Europe mm-hmm. have had money problems and it's mm-hmm. just sort of a re- recurring theme and I guess how public relations are spun I guess has a lot to do with how we view a lot of these people. You know, with traditional history, Hungarian historians, if you do research on queens, you should know that we always tend to look for scapegoat. Sure, responsive. Yes. Who is responsible for that? Why did that what, what is the cause for that? The closest person who, who is the perfect, the ideal scapegoat yes. is the alien one, the sure, queen, of or the queen's relatives. Just have in mind Andrew II's oh, uh, yes. wife, Gertrudis, was murdered. Very uh, brutally. <laughs> and uh, it is also part of the Mohach syndrome that the Habsburg court, the court of uh, Louis II's consort wife, uh, Mary of Habsburg, was, was treated very negatively and was not at all accepted in Hungary and there is a, it's a huge resistance against the very modern and rational measures and they were extremely declined and even detested the Habsburg rulers just a few years before the Battle of, of Mohaj, any kind of reform, any kind of an attempt for modernization and uh, the stabilization of the administration is absolutely negated mm-hmm. and, and uh, rejected and refused by the noble community in Hungary. So it is interesting, but 19th century traditional Hungarian historiography is going in this way, mm-hmm. uh, I think. 
So who is responsible for Mohaj? This is the major question, and I can't find it in English history. Who is responsible for the loss of the Battle of Shrewsbury, for example? <laughs> who is less responsible for Bosworth, for example? I can't find it. Or in, in French historiography, <laughs> who is responsible for Agincourt? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Finishing off our interview with um, Dr. Attila Barani, I just wanted to spend the last couple of minutes asking uh, just a very basic question. I mean... Where do you think the impetus for um, for Hungarian historians studying these medieval contexts abroad um, comes from? It's an interesting thing because some part of Hungarian historians are, or, or seem to be doing, in a way, not in the pejorative way, but old-fashioned traditional research fields, certain ways of living of the peasantry in Transylvanian uh, county in the 13th century, mm-hmm. uh, regional studies, etc. So they were very important things. But a Hungarian historical scholarship in the same way, for example, as a German or Austrian one, is structured as the departments of history or even research institutes are uh, divided into Hungarian history and European history parts. And for a long time, there were no real cooperation between Hungarian historians doing with Hungarian history and European historians. But if I could remember from my studies at Debrecen University, there were some scholars who were doing both Hungarian and uh, European history. For example, uh, András Alföldi or István Oros, for example, who, who were able to see, for example, agricultural history, Hungarian peasantry as a part of a common heritage of, of European agrarian history. Or István Szabó, for example, one of the greatest figures of Hungarian medieval agriculture or medieval peasantry. He was able to look through the boundaries and uh, view a Hungarian peasantry in the context of a Polish, Czech, Austrian, German, Bulgarian, Romanian uh, examples. And we, the younger generation, I think, are, are striving to not to keep this structure anymore and to use the expression of one of my respected professors of, of the CEU Department of Medieval Studies, Janusz Bok. There is only one history. There is no Hungarian history. You cannot do Hungarian history in Hungarian language. You cannot write a paper in Hungarian which will be read by only eight or nine persons. So what's the use of that? So, so I think he, he and other scholars who were able to uh, look beyond the boundaries of Hungarian uh, scholarship and get uh, European examples and sources and European history integrated into their uh, writings, like, for example, Pál Engel, for example, uh, or Janusz uh, great Hungarian medievalists. Uh, Janusz is, I think, one of them. And in my career, he had a great influence because he, at the beginning of the 90s, we were young, he came from the West and brought new impetuses and new types of approaches and visions and, and, and modern methodological issues, and etc., etc. And, and in a way, there was a project when, where we were working together, medieval nobility, Central European nobility project back in the 90s. And it was a kind of a revelation to me because it confirmed this view that uh, you can do Hungarian history and you can write Hungarian history, but you, you should also look beyond your own source material. And I wouldn't like to say that in any kind of research you should do analytic discourse 
and federal examples, taking federal examples from Western European history. But you should, I think, build it into the European context, any kind of writer. When you write, for example, on the canons of the Hungarian bishopric, bishopric of Várat, for example, one of my colleagues is doing a research on the canons, on the in the personal of uh, the cathedral chapter, canons of the chapter of Várad, Oradea, present-day Romania. It is not the way that uh, you can do it without having a look at how the Germans are doing it, what kind of German cathedral chapter personal researches there are, or, or England, how cathedral chapter looked like in England, what kind of uh, relationships there were at that time, some analogues, some parallel examples you should, you should look at. This is what makes Hungarian history, this is still the Hungarian research, but it makes it a European one, I think, if you add that issue we, we learned at the CEU at the beginning of the uh, 1990s. For me, I think the, the sort of integration of, you know, local and very almost continental history for the medieval period is, is, is what makes it interesting. For me, my topic is on Hungarian queens, but I got interested in a volume about European queens where Janusz Bach mm-hmm. managed to write an article and it was so interesting to compare their experiences with the many other examples in there and uh, ah, well the rest is history and here I am today <laughs> so um, this was a great interview thank you very much for joining us today thank you very much for the invitation I also had a good time well good it, it has been a real pleasure to have you here and um For the folks listening at home, be sure to uh, visit us on the web at www.medievalstudies.ceu.hu slash radio. Please uh, send us an email at medievalradio at ceu.hu. And be sure to like us on Facebook. Thank you very much. Goodbye.